Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and condition resources available online today. This episode's guest, I am honoured to have on Dr. Michael Yeses. Dr. Yeses received his PhD from the University of Southern California and his bachelor's and master's from the City University of New York. Dr. Yeses is the president of Sports Training Inc., a diverse sports and fitness company. Dr. Yeses is also a professor emeritus at the California State University, Fullington, where he was a multi-sports specialist in biomechanics and sports conditioning and training. Dr. Yeses has served as a training and technique consultant to several Olympic and professional sports teams. He's also trained hundreds of athletes in different sports and developed unique specialized strength exercises that duplicate what takes place in the execution of game skills. By doing these exercises, athletes improve their skill technique and their physical qualities, strength, specific to their technique. By doing these exercises, athletes improve their performance on the field very, very quickly. Dr. Yeses is also considered the country's foremost expert on sports technique. Dr. Yeses has written 17 books on the sports and fitness field, including Biomechanics and Kinesiology of Exercise, Build a Better Athlete, Sports, Is It All BS? And his latest book, The Revolutionary 120RM Strength Training Program. In addition, he has completed four renowned DVDs, Exercise Mastery, Specialized Strength and Explosive Exercises for the Quarterback, Specialized Strength and Explosive Exercises for Baseball and Softball, as well as the CDs Explosive Tennis the Forehand and Explosive Tennis the Backhand. On this episode, Doc and I discussed many, many topics, including Doc's background, how difficult it was for Doc Yeses to grow up in America with Russian parents during the Cold War, the Soviet's sports training system and the influences of anabolic steroids within that system, the coaching education system within the Soviet sports system at that time. We talk about that in order to be a great specialist, you will first and also concurrently need to be a great generalist. This is a common trend I see with all masters of a specific craft. The stronger and more diverse one's general base, be that in the attainment of a physical capacity or of knowledge, the greater the mastery over the specific domain. Specialty is built off a general base. The greater the general base, the greater the mastery of the specialty. We also discuss Doc's influences, Doc's training philosophy, which is skill execution is king, how Doc differentiates between a physical capacity issue and a skill issue. The roles of general strength and special strength training means over the course of an athlete's career and development. Doc gives us a detailed description of the 1x20 method and how he came to formulate it. Doc discusses the criteria he uses developing his prescription for special strength exercises. Doc talks about how he likes to program and organize the training process. Doc tells us about the biggest lessons he has learned over his career and life. What Doc's current daily rituals and routines are. Doc's top advice and resources to all the listeners. And finally, if Doc could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would he invite and why? 
Guys, this was an absolutely outstanding episode with Dr. Yeses, and I hope you really, really enjoy it. Okay, Dr. Michael Yeses, it is an absolute pleasure and an absolute honor to have you come on to my podcast, sir. Just for the listeners who might be too familiar who you are, Dr. Yeses, which I would say would be nobody, <laughs> um, but just for the sin on your background. Um, well, it's quite diverse. Uh, I've been in the field for many years, and after getting my PhD, uh, I really looked more closely at what the Soviets were doing. Soviets at that time, Russia now. But they were so far ahead of the rest of the world in terms of their sciences and sports practices. Uh, I got involved mainly from a reading and translating, but then I met many of the Russians at track meets and became a translator and an interpreter, uh, both for the U.S. as well as for the Russians. <clears throat> it, was, it was sort of interesting. So I got to know them very well. I've been there many times. Uh, I've lived with some of them and got to know them when they came here. So I incorporated quite a few of their methods with athletes here in the United States. Very successful. <clears throat> so this led to more exploration and the development of different methods here. <clears throat> I think I can say I went a little bit beyond what the Russians did. See, after the country broke up, everything ceased, which is really is one of the biggest crimes or shames, whatever the word is, uh, that ever happened with the breakup of the Soviet Union that way. Mm. When it comes to the sports area, yeah. uh, let's forget the politics now, but just the sports. <clears throat> and everything ceased. Coaches left the country. No... They didn't do anything worthwhile anymore. Now they may be doing something I don't know, but uh, that's why I call it really a, a crime. But make a long story short, I learned quite a bit from them initially, but then I went beyond because everything that they did stopped in 94. And most of the methods that are being uh, talked about today they're 30 to 40 to 50 years old. See, so I've kind of picked up where they left off and advanced some of the some of the exercises and methodologies. Even in my teaching, I taught biomechanics and kinesiology. Uh, and then in biomechanics, a lot of it was based on what they did. And just to give you a little example of how far ahead they were, here I was a, quote, an expert in biomechanics. This is what I taught on a, on a collegiate level. And I would read every month in some of the different magazines, and these are magazines for coaches. Mm. I would read articles on analysis of a world-class performer. So here's a world record holder, let's say in the sprints. And they would report on Americans, Africans, Jamaicans, whatever it was. They didn't care what country you came from. It was what you did. And they were so familiar with everything that we were doing, as well as our athletes. Anyway, make a long story short, uh, I would read the analyses 
They would have cinematograms, pictures by picture, all the way through. They say, if you look over here between this frame and this frame, you can see he's not doing so-and-so. If he would only incorporate these exercises, or if he would work a little bit more on this aspect, you know, and I'm, I'm taking a look at all of this, all these recommendations, and all these flaws that they brought out. And I couldn't see him. There's a world record holder. As far as I was concerned, hey, this guy's the greatest. This is how we were brought up in this country. If it's a world record holder, he's got perfect technique. A technique that's worthy of imitation or copying. Well, the Russians threw that out the window for me. They were taking apart world-class performers. And I don't mean completely. It was mostly, mostly it was just little tweaking. Yeah. Well, since then, uh, I now understand where they were coming from. Of course, now I too could look at a world-class performer. I've looked at Hussein Bolt, for example. Even when he won or broke the world's record, he still could have been better technique-wise. Yeah. Yeah. And with some of the different exercises. Which is a frightening aspect to think of. Yeah, and it's it's mind-boggling, you know, when you tell this to someone. But that's that was a level of sophistication. So that, in essence, has been most of it. And I tried writing about many of these things to get the information out to everyone. My interest was really to educate everyone. And I don't mean educate in a, a literal sense, but to make the knowledge available yeah. to all of the coaches. So that they too can cooperate some of these methods to improve their athlete's performance. Uh, with sorrow, many of the coaches thought I was doing them a disfavor because we were so brainwashed at that time. If it had anything to do with the Soviets, it had to be bad. Mm. They're, they're giving us this information to sabotage our sports programs, you know. Uh, but I won't dwell on all those. There, there were quite a few people like that with that kind of thinking. But anyway, that's a little bit about my background. And I've written uh, now 18 books uh, on, on various topics, all dealing with sports training. And the information there uh, could be of great help to all present coaches. Uh, the information is still, I think, ahead of uh, what many people are practicing uh, throughout the world. How did you learn Russian? I grew up with the language. My parents were both Russian. I was thinking, yeah. I was born in the United States, but they were Russian. But I only knew household Russian. And when I looked at their uh, uh, articles and tried translating them, I, I was lost. Yeah. Because I didn't know the uh, both sports as well as scientific terminology. I wasn't familiar with it. So the dictionary, I was looking up every other word. But I was intrigued enough to continue with it. And when I found out how good the information was, it, it forced me into continuing to delve into it more, to learn more. Yeah. So I, I did it as a labor of love, not a monetary thing. How you kind of touched on a little bit there, how difficult... And even given the fact that your parents were from the Soviet Union, 
I suppose it's a two-part question. How difficult was it for you growing up in America at that time due to the Cold War? And then secondly, how resistant were other coaches to this information initially when Russia was still the Soviet Union at the time, obviously because, again, of, of the Cold War and, and the relationships between the countries? Uh, during the Cold War, uh, for some people, it was a little touchy. Mm. But most people didn't care, especially people who knew me. Uh, growing up, even during the Second World War, uh, it was also kind of touchy. Once we were friends with Russia, so I was a good guy. Cold War, then I was a bad guy. Yeah. You know, it, it changed, you know, uh, this way. But I got older. I was older by that time, and it didn't bother me as much. And uh, so kind of got through that phase. But many of the coaches, as I brought out even before, they were res- resistant to some of this information. Anything, uh, and a lot of it was, as I found out later, was uh, propaganda or brainwashing. Like, for example, the, how should I put it, the common understanding of the United States was that, you know, the KGB is looking after everybody. Anybody who goes to the Soviet Union, there's a KGB guy following them all the way around. Well, when I was over there with the Russian coaches, my visa only called for being in a particular area. And when I was with the Russian coach, I said, you know, I'd love to go see this other area. I don't know somebody who kind of lives there or something. And they said, well, go. I said, no, my visa won't let me go. They looked at me and said, get out of here, go. Don't worry about it. I went, went all over, all on my own, visa, no visa. Nobody was following me. Nobody cared. See, so, you know, uh, a lot of falsehoods that permeated the uh, the field and literature at that time. Well, what year was that? Do you remember, Doctor Yeses? Sometime in the eighties. I was over there so, so many times. I don't remember exactly which one, but maybe in the mid eighties. A question that I know some of the listeners will, will want me to ask is: Oh, it, it has been discussed an awful lot that the Russians did have superior training methods or it, it is assumed they had superior training methods but you, you're you probably used to getting this question that a lot of other coaches will say it was because of their superior drug program oh I know <laughs> and I, I don't I don't say this to make you angry I just say it so that you can address it no I know sure and I'll be happy to and I, I guess sorry just for you for you continue, I guess because Russia and drugs is on the top of everyone's mind again due to that documentary on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen it, Icarus. It, it talks about their, their drug doping in, in, in the recent Winter Olympics. Um, so it's kind of high. And also going into the Summer Olympic Games where, where they had the, the issues. So it's kind of on, yeah. the, on top of mind awareness. But go ahead. Yeah, you really have to take a look at whatever you're talking about. Yeah. They did use drugs. They used it early in the program. They knew more about steroids and their effects than maybe any other country. <clears throat> but they also found out the dangerous aspects. And they lost a couple of good athletes. And word came down from the top, so to speak. We have too much money and time invested in these athletes. No more drugs. We don't want to lose anymore. So, yes, they used them, they learned about them, and then they were off them. 
Now, this does not mean that some of the athletes didn't continue. And they did. And they were soon found out because they couldn't keep up with the performance or the training or whatever it might be. See, so most of the time, or when I was with the Russians, let's say in the 80s, most of the athletes were all drug-free. And it was not state-sponsored anymore. And you can't compare that time with, let's say, what's going on now. Mm. With Putin, who knows what's going on. So, uh, yeah, he's he's something else. So, uh, drug use was there, but it overshadows the biggest thing. And that was the training. What they did in training. It's just like what's comparable to that today. We put so much emphasis, at least in this country, on genetics. Coaches always use genetics. Oh, he's a genetic freak. No, he's got the genetics for it. Uh, yeah, he, yeah, his genetics allow him to do all of this. Well, that's hogwash. Genetics are very important. They play a role, but only on extremes. There have been quite a few studies done showing that An athlete who does not have the genetics can be as good, if not better, than the person with the good genetics. It's in the training. And even research backs this up and says that 70% of an athlete's success is due to the environment or the training aspects. Only 30% is determined by genetics. And are these Russian studies or... There is, US. If, if, if you can send those to me, that would be great. I'd love to see those. Uh, you know, I've, if, if I was still at the university teaching, I probably would. I would have them all cataloged. Yeah, yeah. But since I've been retired, I read it and toss it. I, I don't, I don't, I don't keep my libraries up anymore. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm currently doing a master, so I have access to one. So I'll search and see if I can get any. But well, that's interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't been aware of that. Yeah, like, I, 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 I do. Sorry to cut across you. Yeah, I, I do fully appreciate the epigenetics and how uh, the environment can shape an organism's expression. But I, I didn't know. Uh, I hadn't looked into anything in terms of you know genetics and epigenetic expression in terms of you know that that somebody with an inferior genetic expression times training could outdo someone who's got more genetic uh, predisposition. But surely someone with, with genetic predisposition plus training plus drugs will always win out. Yeah, see, the key factor here, if you can get a person with a good genetics and also give them the good training, yeah. now you have a world-class athlete. Yeah, yeah. Well, I shouldn't say world-class. Now you have the best athlete. Yeah. So uh, this is not to disregard genetics. Of course. But I'm just saying, genetics is not number one. Yeah. Training is number one. But when coupled with good genetics, this is the ideal. Mm. But even if you, if your genetics not the greatest, the training can make you as good as a person with the genetics who doesn't do as much training. Yeah, yeah. Great stuff. Talk See, and, oh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, we... Yeah, see, it's, it's a training. Too many people don't look at training. Uh, most of the training, I think, in the United States is geared around strength training. Mm. That's only one small aspect. Yeah. Very important. 
but it's minor compared to all the other aspects that go into training. Yeah. And maybe I shouldn't say minor. It's very important, but its importance is overshadowed by other factors. Like, for example, technique. Technique is the most ignored factor in the United States. It's hard to find a coach who works on improving technique. But yet, what I've come up with after all these years, I've gotten to the point where I've determined what makes the best athlete or what what determines the success of an athlete. Name one. This is a question I'm going to ask you now. What one factor is the key to any athlete's success on the field? Well, I, 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 I wouldn't. Oh, what's on the field? What's the one key? Well, speed. But if, if you're talking, if you had asked me what is one determining factor for an athlete, I probably would have said genetics. <laughs> you're probably going to say no. You're probably going to say it's the training now. But it's, it's the, it's the, as coaches, I would say it's our ability to make them express the most amount of force and the least amount of time as they execute their sport specific skill. Ah, okay. Repeat that last part again. So it's execution it, of the skill. Of the skill, yeah. Specific to the sport. Yeah. That's the number one factor. I got it. <laughs> yeah. If you're a runner, you have to be able to run. Yes, yes, sir. Specific, specificity. The principle of specificity. If you throw her, you have to be able to throw. Yeah. The better you throw, the more successful you're going to be. Yeah. See, so if execution of the skill is the most important, then we have to revolve most of our training around that, around that one point. How do we improve execution of the skill? Dr. Essa, I believe in one of your books you spoke about the education of the Soviet coaches and that I suppose what, from, from what I've read is that they were educated in a sort of all-encompassing, I can't say that word, manner. So again, yeah, you're right. So they, they would focus first on the sports skill and then everything would build away from that. Whereas what seemed to happen in the Western model, like in the USA, is like they just took like the strength and conditioning piece of that model, and that became like this whole monster in and of itself. And it kind of then, it kind of then just, it got away from this holistic model of, no, no, like the strength and conditioning coach really is just like one piece of this whole sports preparation coach that, that, that the Soviet model used to teach. Like I can't remember who said it, but someone said that, if you had used the term strength and conditioning coach to an old, an old Soviet sports sports coach back back in the day, they would have they would have been like, "What's the strength and conditioning coach?" And they're like, "Oh, you mean like you deal with the weights?" It's like that's we we do that anyway. Like it's it's part of our our whole global training system. So maybe maybe can you can you touch on this you know this 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 very all encompassing education that the Soviet coaches got and how that kind of got muddled and kind of it it kind of got cut up into pieces in America where instead of this one coach. Who, who looked at this whole model, it got like into these multiple coaches. You had a strength coach and a skills coach and a, you know, and then you had your sports medicine staff, whereas it was kind of like this one coach with the Soviet program who, who, who's educated in all these general fields. Yeah, it's, uh, well, see, he based everything on uh, a simple concept. <clears throat> Maybe one way of putting it is like a generalist, mm. you know, someone who knows a little bit about everything. 
owned to a fine point. See, so it's an exploit on top, but his base is composed of many items. Yes. See, they become more refined as he moves up. So, well, like a good example, I knew the Russian uh, track and field doctor very well. And he and I would get together all the time. And one, this one time we were watching some of the events. So here he is, the doctor. And we're looking at this either high jump. Yeah, there was a high jumper. And he said, oh, man, look at him. He said, he's going to be coming down with an injury. I said, wait, what do you mean? I said, well, yeah, look at his technique. Look at what he's doing over here. He's doing so-and-so. And I was flabbergasted. See, I didn't even see that. And here he was, the Russian coach, I mean, doctorate. So he knew a lot about biomechanics. Yeah. He knew about the technique. Yeah. See, he explained this to me later on. He says, for me to be a good doctor, I have to know what they're doing. I have to know how they're training so that I can understand what causes the injury and hopefully prevent it. See, so that's why they were an integral role. They played an integral role in not only the development of the athlete, but in taking care of him yeah. and making him, you know, uh, perform even better. It's it's funny you, you talk about that because I spent a lot of time with coaches who would be seen as masters of their craft. So, like uh, Adam Faf or Stu McMillan, um, as an example, and what I've noticed is, and not even coaches, but even some like um, physical therapists like a Bill Hartman too or a, a Charlie Weingroff, what, what I've noticed is that all these guys who are masters of their crafts, they're great generalists. And the more their general knowledge improves, the, the, the more they begin to master their speciality. So it's a, it, it's just a common theme I've seen with all these masters in their in their particular profession or their particular craft that the more of a general base of knowledge they have, the more of an expert or the more of a master they are in their speciality. So it's 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 a, it's it's very interesting to hear you say that as well. Yeah, see, and uh, it, it wasn't just on the upper level uh, with the coaches. They also believed in this concept with athletes. So their concept of a great athlete was a, an athlete who could do a little bit of everything, who could do one thing the best. And they believed that the more they could do, the more different things that they could do, it allows them to become the greatest in any one thing mm. or one sport. So when they had good experience in many sports, they could become the best in one sport. See, so it's the same concept, whether it be the athlete or the coach. Dr. Yes, is in, in terms of, and I'm really interested to ask this question, particularly of someone of, of your experience, in terms of your biggest influences, um, and not only professionally, but also personally. Who, who have been the biggest influences on you, both professionally and personally, in your life? Do I have anyone who influenced me? Yeah, so like your your biggest influences on you, both professionally and personally. You know, I've been asked this a few times. I don't think I ever had one. 
I had a couple of professors when I was working on my PhD that made me think of a couple of things uh, that I still remember. Like, for example, uh, when I was still teaching, I had this one professor say, you can have a class of 15, but if you can get one of those 15 who really learns what you have to offer and really gets on board with you, you've done a great job. Wow. See, and the usual concept was, well, you got to get everybody. Oh, yeah. No, uh, the key, he said, see, I carried this over to my uh, sports training. Mm. So you take a look at how many athletes really want to be the greatest. Yeah. And many of them are going to fall by the wayside. They won't do the training or whatever. But to get the one kid or two kids who really want to go all the way, that is the satisfaction. So, uh, see, I, I, I won't say I was spread out, but I'm a conglomerate of many things. Yes. So that's why there's, there was no such thing as one mentor. Maybe I had many people who had some influence on me, and I know I did, but there was no one overriding Yeah. because I couldn't think of anyone at that time who really was doing everything that I was doing. Who who would then have been some of your your let me see how to try and word this the who would have been the peers within the within the field as you went through your career that you sort of associated with most so like uh, obviously you know you spent time with Dr. Bondarchov you you knew uh, Yuri Verkashansky uh, you knew Mel Sif would would these guys have been uh, peers in the field that you would have had of, uh, a lot of discussion, conversations, and, and time with over your career? Well, Mel Sif and I, uh, uh, well, I think we were more equals. He would seek me out for information on particular things, and I would seek him out for information. Yeah. So we were mutual colleagues in that respect. <clears throat> and even when I was in South, South Africa, you know, where I helped him out at the university and uh, a few other people there. But yeah, some of the Russians probably had some influence on me, or this is where I learned quite a bit. Like Varyshansky, uh, brilliant person. Uh, you know, he uh, was responsible or was a creator of many things. We think of him with plyometrics, but this whole concept of the stretch shortening principle. Mm. See, that was his. He's the one who came up with that. So that one concept. See, and you can carry it into many different areas. I use that concept to develop many different exercises. Yeah. See, and even uh, with like some of the exercises that he did, like what I now call the knee drive. See, at that time, it was the way he did the exercises. They were so cumbersome. Uh, you know, you needed a horse and you needed some things hanging and you needed weight shoes. And uh, it was just, and I did all these. I copied them. You know, I saw what he was doing there when I was there with him, and I tried copying this country, and I said, no, this is crazy. Nobody in the United States is going to be doing these. And that's when I came up with what I call the active cords. And these are much more effective than the way he was doing the exercise. So this is where, yes, he had a direct influence on me in the early days, but then I took his information and expanded on it from my own background in biomechanics and kinesiology and so on. Yeah. So I incorporated much from these people, but then I blended it into what I was doing. Yeah. See, and then I came up with these programs. So moving on from there then, Dr. Yes, is 
if I was to pose the question to you, what is your training philosophy? Or some people don't like the term philosophy because they think it's it's too subjective. What is your overall arching training system or principles that you utilize to uh, get the get the maximum potential out of athletic performance? Okay, uh, it goes back to our discussion earlier. Mm-hmm. Skill execution number one is the number one factor. Beautiful. So when an athlete comes to me, uh, okay, I want I want to train with you, or sometimes I'll get the request, can you uh, write up a program for me? I'm a uh, thrower. And no, I can't. Well, what do you mean you can't? Well, what, sure you can. You've done this for many people. No, I have to see you first. Yeah. I have to see how you throw. Because to me, the skill execution sets up the training program. When I look at skill execution, and I look at it and say, oh, now he needs a little bit more of this. This could be enhanced. He shouldn't be doing this. This has to be changed. Or see, I take a look at what has to be done with the skill to improve it. And then I do exercises for these. See, I came up with, um, I think, what is a unique or very different type of training where I use strength exercises to make corrections in technique. And then it's based on the concept of duplicating the same neuromuscular pathway. See, in trying to make changes, when I worked with athletes and you tell them verbally what to do and then he would do it and you're yelling at him, no, no, a little more of this, no, do this, do that. It, very ineffective. And it finally dawned on me, they don't have the ability to do the changes that I'm recommending. So in order to make corrections or enhance their technique or skill execution, I have to develop their ability for them to do this. And you develop the ability by doing a strength exercise that duplicates exactly what they do or what happens in that one particular joint action. In this way, they're improving their technique and they're developing strength in the same range of motion, in the same neuromuscular pathway as used in the skill execution. See, and once they uh, develop that neuromuscular pathway and the strength, then we put it back and incorporate it into the total picture. Could you- and this is what improves technique. Could you give maybe an example of that so the listeners could, could maybe digest that a little easier? So, like, if you want to give an example uh, of something you've done with an athlete previously where you've, where you've taken an exercise and you used it in terms of a special strength exercise to develop uh, special strength through the skill, ex- the skill execution. Okay. I'll use uh, running as a good example. It's more universal. Yeah. Used in just about every sport. Okay, there were two things I found in most runners. Um, first, they were too slow in bringing their swing leg forward. And by too slow, I mean when they were, when they, one foot was in contact with the ground, the other thigh was still behind the body. Yeah. So they needed more force to bring it up faster. Yeah. Because in the ideal situation, when that foot hits the ground, your swing leg thigh should be directly over the foot. Yeah. 
All right, so then I develop the knee drive exercise. See, and this one develops the hip flexor muscles, beginning with the leg completely behind the body. They have to feel a strong stretch on the hip flexors, keeping the upper body as erect as possible. With the thigh all the way back, they feel a strong stretch. Then, and they, they're hooked up with uh, the active cords to create resistance. Then they have to bring the thigh forward. So they learn to bring the thigh from behind the body to underneath or slightly in front of the body. It's a horizontal drive of the thigh. Mm -hmm. Now, most people, when they do an exercise for the uh, hip flexors, they just bring the thigh directly up and down. Yes, yeah. Well, that's going to create a upward drive. We don't want an upward drive. That's going to be vertical. We want a horizontal drive in running. So the knee drive was one of the key exercises to learn not only to begin the drive early from the leg over behind the body, but also to have enough force to bring it through quickly, especially for a sprinter. They're the ones that really need it. Then the second part, and that one action, by the way, uh, is responsible for maybe one-third to one uh, or more of the speed that the athlete generates. Uh, how, how are you determining that? Well, the study's been done both in the U.S. as well as in the Soviet Union, uh, where they took, took a look at the amount of energy expended by the different joints mm -hmm. and what their contribution is in terms of force production. And the th bringing the thigh forward and bringing the thigh down and back use up 80% of all the energy. How did they come up with that calculation? Was it just a theoretical well, model? It's, a, it's understandable. you got to remember, the thigh has a lot of mass. You take a look at your sprinters today. Oh, yeah, yeah. Massive thighs. Yeah. So, uh, and I don't remember the details of them. But they were hooked up in a way where they could do this. Yeah. And also in terms of muscle activity, during the push-off, see, the Russians did this, and they had uh, electrodes, you know, in all the major muscles. So they found that during the push-off, these were the three key areas where the muscles were active. Mm -hmm. So thigh drive and then bringing it back or the pullback. Yeah, yeah. See, that was going to be the other example I was going to bring in, how, how they, uh, you, you can learn from this, where I developed an exercise where they bring the leg down and back. See, this is duplicating the pullback. This is the number one or number two area that I see in most runners. They don't have any pullback. But you need this. After the leg is brought forward, you have to bring it back. The leg should be moving backward when it makes contact with the ground. This not only minimizes the ground-breaking forces, but also when that foot hits the ground, it stops. The upper body is brought forward more. Yeah, yeah. And we want that upper body as far forward as possible before the push-off begins. D Dr. Yes, is there skill acquisition is something that I've been personally reading up on and studying over the last probably two years now, particularly since I started my master's last year. Because one of our lectures is a gentleman called uh, John Goodwin, and, and it's one of his areas of expertise. 
and he talks about uh, understanding the difference between a skill versus a capacity issue. So basically, he would say that if an athlete has a faulty movement in the execution of a particular skill, be it a weight room lift or a skill within their sport, it's either a, a capacity issue, meaning that they don't have like the strength, power, or speed to execute a skill, or it's an actual skill issue where they do have the strength, power, or speed, but they just don't have the actual motor control or technical model to execute their, their skill uh, properly. Um, off the back of that then, how would you determine if it is a capacity or a skill issue with an athlete? If that question makes sense. Uh, no, sure. No, it makes sense. And that's in full agreement with what I've been saying, yes. with what you brought out. Uh, when you talk about capacity, it is what I call development of physical abilities. Yeah. It's the same difference. Uh, no, you, you can tell very easily. We'll, we'll go back to my uh, original example of bringing the thigh forward. Uh, if it's too slow, they're doing it, so technically, yes, they have the skill to do it, but it's not fast enough. Mm-hmm. So that tells you right away they need more force reduction at the beginning. So that's why they need more strength to develop more force to drive the thigh forward. Yeah. yeah. And after the force, more explosive power. See, well, yeah, you can tell by analyzing the technique, you know, whether it's more physical. And if you have a question about it, do both. Yeah. See, so yeah. because remember, each exercise, and I call these specialized strength exercises, they couple technique with the physical ability. Yeah. It's, con- it's so a, con- a conjugate method. It's what? A, a conjugate method? What Bonner Chokhov? Well, Jeff, Jeff, well, Jeff Moyer has that in the chapter. He yeah, says it, it's, you know, uh, different terms. Yeah, you could call it a conjugate method. I just call it, uh, well, this is what the definition of a specialized exercise is, a specialized strength exercise. Yes. Yeah, where yeah. it couples strength with technique. You're developing the capacity and the skill. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Yes, do, do, would you still, what is your take on just general strength training in terms of, you know, I suppose the more classical methods and means of just developing general strength in the organism? Do you still think that has a place and is it more so it has a place early on in at least development and then when they get to a certain level of general strength then more of their training should just, should just be through specialized strength training exercises? And when they do become more elite, more advanced, would you still keep a, a, a low sort of volume of general strength in, in an athlete's program um, and then just more sort of special strength exercises as they become more elite? Okay, I'd like to modify that just a little bit. Now, rather than using the terms general, and I did this for years, I've written about it. First, you need the general physical preparation and you order specialized physical preparation and then competition. Now I think of it more as, first you must develop the base or foundation. Uh This becomes the key. Once you have the base or foundation, which incorporates many of the uh, uh, physical, general, general strength training. So once you have this foundation, it now allows you to do the next phase of training which is now more specialized. See, and and let's go back a little bit to the foundation. By foundation, this is how I came up with 
what is now known as the 1 by 20 program, strength training program, where you can do over 20 different exercises in one session for 20 repetitions for one set. Evil mind you. That's the basis for it. Now, what does this program do? It strengthens all of the major joints and muscles. No other program can do this. All the high-intensity programs that are in vogue today, they maybe do five different exercises, and they do three or four sets of that exercise, and that's it. Well, one multi-joint exercise is never going to develop all of the muscles and joints of the body. Take a look at the ankle. How many actions does an ankle have to do? Uh, For a running athlete, the ankle is obvious, has to dorsiflex and flex. So there's two actions right there we must strengthen. Two exercises we must do. Toe raises and heel raises. Now, when you're also involved in cutting actions or going sideways, then we have to take a look at foot supination pronation or pronation or, um, okay, adduction, abduction, pronation, supination. It all depends what field you're in to know what which terminology you want to use. Yeah, yeah. Or some people say eversion and some say inversion. But needless to say, you have two major sideward actions, turning the sole out, turning the sole of the foot in. All right, now we have four different actions. These are now four different exercises that we have to do for the ankle. Go up to the knee joint. Knee joint has flexion and extension. We have to do two exercises for this. Now, we also want to strengthen the uh, ligaments on the sides of the knee. These are the most common injuries. This is one of the common injuries that occur in American football, and I believe in rugby to some extent. Yeah. Uh, okay, then move up into the hip joint. Well, you got your flexion, used in running and many other sports. You got your extension, bring the leg down or your pull back, bringing the leg out to the side and all the side movements. You got hip adduction, abduction. Then you got hip rotation when you're stationary, like a golfer. Uh, so now you're up to six different actions just in the hip joint. So this is six actions, six exercises here. Two exercises for the knee, that's eight. Four for the ankle, that's 12 exercises already. Then you get into the midsection. You need a minimum of three for the abdominals. What I call a 45-degree sit-up. Reverse sit-up, reverse trunk twist. For the lower back, back raises. Back raises with a twist. Five exercises. Were we up to 12 and 5? There's 17 exercises already. And we didn't even get to the upper body. See, you know, we can take a look at the shoulder. Look at all the movements in the shoulder. From rotational movements to flexion, extension, adduction, abduction. That's like six more movements just in the shoulder, then the elbow, then the wrist, fingers, hands. So anyway, without uh, continuing, you can see how you need over 20 different exercises, at least, to really lay a good foundation. Now, after you have this foundation, now we can bring to it, we can now start to incorporate more specialized work. 
and sometimes the foundational work, which is used mainly with young athletes, the high school athlete, they, it should be universal. All high school athletes should be on this program. Mm-hmm. It develops the base that they need to become a better athlete. Remember what we talked about earlier? The universal concept. Do a little bit of everything. Yeah. Or play many different sports, many different abilities. Same thing with your development. You got to develop each of the joints and all their actions. Now I can do whatever I want later on. See, the 1 by 20 program also develops uh, the neuromuscular pathways needed for all of these movements. Then later on in a more advanced movement, we incorporate many of these movements. Yeah. But it's already learned. We already have it there. So the learning at, at a later age is much faster and much more efficient. See, and then only then, when we do the specialized strength training or the conjugate training, now we're coupling both these together. And the specialized strength exercises have an immediate immediate effect on your performance, mainly because they are mimicking or duplicating what you do in skill execution. How did you formulate the 1 by 20? Was it something you learned in the Soviet Union, or is it something that you, you, you developed yourself through certain things you saw in the Soviet training system? And, and why, why 20 repetitions too? Like why, why could I not do, say, four sets of five with a short rest period and accumulate 20 reps that way? Uh, okay. <laughs> Good questions. Uh, first, let's go back. I developed this on my own uh, through my own education. And you could do this even you take a look at your own education. If you've had courses in motor learning, what are you taught? You must start off slowly. You develop or increase gradually. You don't do too much at first. Yeah. Um, so then you take a look at strength training. You're not going to start off with maximum high intensity immediately. Uh, you have to build up to it. So everything is kind of gradual to build up to everything. Yeah. So if it is gradual, I incorporate all of this. I said, okay, when I'm going to teach an athlete a new exercise, we first have to accustom him to the exercise. So only a few repetitions. Then after a few repetitions, we could add a few more. Then we could add a few more. What's the secret to learning skill? It's repetition. It may take hundreds, if not thousands of repetitions before a skill is truly learned. So when we incorporate all of this in all of my strength training programs, this is how we started. And the athlete would work up to doing 10 to 15. And I said, if you get to 20, then you got to drop down. Well, Yosef and maybe some of his other friends uh, came up with the term. He says, look, you've been doing this all your life. Why don't you give it a fancy name and call it the one by 20? He said you came up with that fancy name just to let you know. I've been doing this all my life. <laughs> see? He said, why don't you give it a nice name? So there it was. And that's where the one by 20 uh, words came from. Um, but it's really based on sound Educational knowledge. Yeah, yeah. It's not something unique that I just dreamed up, uh, but I formalized yeah. and put together and put into practice. 
So when you take a look at the high intensity program, what's the real basis for this? Why do you want to start with high intensity? The body is not ready for it. See, and uh, speaking of intensity, the 1 by 20 strength training program is a moderate intensity program. Now, Russian research has shown that moderate intensity is much better for adaptation in the body. If we want to learn something, we must have moderate intensity. High intensity is still good. It'll do it. But not as much as a moderate intensity. Yeah, yeah. In the area of strength training, high intensity is good. It'll, it'll make it stronger, no question about it. But the one by 20 will make you stronger. See, and then uh, the explanation for this, if you take a look at 20, let's say 20 repetitions, first 12 to 15 repetitions, they're mainly for muscular endurance. Yeah. Now, muscular endurance is the key in all of our sports if you're going to play the whole game. Yeah. You need more muscular endurance rather than strength. Okay? Then the last few repetitions, say if we did 15 were, were for uh, uh, muscular, muscular strength, uh, muscular endurance, then the last five are for strength. And the intensity in the last five reps is analogous to the intensity seen in a high-intensity program. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how we get a combination of both. We're getting strength. We're getting muscular endurance. But because of the neuromuscular pathway developing more coordination, uh, the greater circulation uh, from the higher reps, we're also developing stronger ligaments and tendons. And the list goes on. So this is why the 1 by 20 is proven to be so successful and why it should be used as the base training. Dr. Yeses, can you speak about specificity and the transfer of training? And, and specifically what I'm getting at here is that specificity seems to have a lot of subcategory, subcategory. So in that, like, there's a biomechanical specificity, there's also a biochemical specificity in terms of an energy system. Um, there's also the velocity of a movement, the range of motion. Um, how much, how much did the Soviets, like, how did the Soviets view specificity and, and how do they, and then I suppose, how do you, like, what criteria do you use to develop your special strength exercises for, uh, the transfer of training? And um, do, do you go by the dynamic correspondence model put forward by Verkashansky and SIF? Or so basically, ha, ha, when you look at a sport and you're developing your special strength exercises, what criteria do you use in terms of getting that specific transfer? <clears throat> okay, I use three. Verkashansky uses five or six. Other people, they vary. Uh, but the most important, the three criteria that I use it must duplicate the same neuromuscular pathway. Okay. That is number one. And sometimes that's all you need. Just before you continue, is that possible to stimulate the same neural pathway if the specialized strength exercise 
because it has some resistance, is slower than what it would be in competition. Uh, that has nothing to do with neuromuscular pathway. That has to do with the execution. And, and I'll get to that if I go down my list a little bit. Yeah, okay, okay, continue. That's interesting. <clears throat> no, number one is to, the pathway. See, now we're duplicating what you do in a sport, in a skill execution. Mm-hmm. Number two, you're developing strength in the same range of motion in which it is displayed in execution of the skill. Range of motion is critical. I alluded to that when I was talking about the knee drive. Yeah. If you bring the, start with the thigh behind the body and bring it forward, that's what happens in running. But if you're standing in one place and bring the thigh up, that still develops the same muscles, but not in the same neuromuscular pathway. Okay. And you're not developing strength in that same range of motion where it's needed or displayed. Okay, then number three, and this is this is really what's answering your uh, question. Number three, the muscular contraction must duplicate what occurs in execution of the skill. So in other words, if it's, an, if it's an explosive contraction, we have to use an explosive contraction. Okay. But now, you can't start off with an explosive contraction. Just the way you can't start off with the maximum weight for one repetition when you never lifted a weight in your life. Yeah. Uh, as long as you have what I found, as long as you have one of these criteria operating, you will derive some benefit that will transfer. And the neuromuscular pathway is number one. Making it more refined is also to bring in development of strength in the same range of motion. Number three, it'll take a while before you get to number three. Because when you're doing, let's say, we'll just use the knee driving example again. You can do the exercise relatively slowly, let's say slow to moderate. Yeah. This is good for strength. So we have to develop the strength first before we do any explosive contraction. <clears throat> so thigh is coming through, we're developing the strength. <clears throat> we pick up the speed. Now we're bringing in a little bit more speed. And then when the athlete is ready for it, and this could be a couple of months down the road, now he's ready for an explosive contraction. Now we're duplicating the total skill execution of the knee drive. But any one or two of these will still improve performance. When you have an athlete just bringing the thigh forward, even developing strength, he's learning how to do it. And his mind, in his mind, he'll begin to incorporate that action in his running. Would you? So that's why it's still a benefit. Would you ever pair... Or, you know, the term some people use is superset. Would you ever superset, I prefer the word pair, a special strength exercise? And then to sort of stabilize it, would you do the actual specific sports skill right after it? So, like, so with the knee drive, would you do like the knee drive and then maybe do some type of running drill or, or, or some type of sprint? Yes. <clears throat> Excuse me. When they're ready for the explosive work. Yes. See, then I have them, like, for example, a runner. I have them stand outside. We find either a tree or uh, a lake fence. 
and we hook in the active cords. Then they do, you know, maybe five reps, bam, 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 real quick. So now we've activated the hip flexors or the pullback, whatever it is. Hook it off, goes on a track, let's run. Yeah. Yeah, so we do the immediate after effect. Uh, but that's only at the end of the training. We can do this. Yeah. So, yeah, so Doc, uh, I, I've asked Jeff this, Jeff Moyer, this question before, um, and also Kirwan and Flat, who I know you know as well, um, about where do they place their special strength work within a tr- just a training session. So they'd say, you know, they do their general warm-up, then they, boom, go into their, uh, they might do a little bit of plyometric work, metabolic work, then they usually do their special strength, and then they'll finish off with some general strength work. W- would that be how you would have structured your sessions with, with your athletes? Or, or how, how would how would the training session have looked? Uh, no. <clears throat> uh, it has some of the same generalities. All right, let me, let me back up here for a minute. <clears throat> It's a concept of not true periodization, but it's similar or what I would call some form of periodization. It's based on what I firmly believe. You must first develop X before you can train for Y okay. in order to then train for Z. <clears throat> you can't jump the gun and train for Z. <clears throat> train... <clears throat> Got a frog in my throat. You're okay. Take your time. Uh, you, you can't train for Z if you don't have X. Okay. The frog is gone. Now, the, the X is the foundation. See, they need this foundation first. Yeah, yeah. And it may include some easy jumping. Yeah, but plyometrics are kind of reserved for the second and third year. But sorry, I, I used I used the wrong term there. I, I just mean in terms of, and again, I know it's going to vary depending on the training age and experience of the athlete. But I just mean in terms of a general session structure, would your special strength work sort of fall in between after like your little bit of speed work and before your general strength work? Um, and and when I mean speed work, the speed work will be relative to the athlete, like you know. And then obviously the the, the plyometrics probably was the wrong term to use. And even I actually get annoyed when people said plyometrics because plyometrics to me is like jumping over hurdles with short ground contact times, or death jumping, or de- or drop jumps. Whereas like jumping up on a box is not a plyometric; that's jump training. So I, I suppose I, I was just using the wrong semantic there. I just meant that. Jeff would say, like, they do a warm-up, and then if they were going to do some type of jumps or plyometrics or medicine ball, it would go then. Then they would do their – or sorry, then they might do a bit of speed or, or multidirectional. Then they do their special strength, and then they would do their general strength. Like, he finds that structure works well in terms of where to incorporate the special strength component within a training session. That's all I was trying to get at. All right. So, you know, it's kind of hard to explain. Let me go back to my uh, – but I tried to explain. I don't mix up all of the trainings. Okay, okay, yeah. See, and I think this is where we have some confusion. I don't incorporate plyometrics with strength training, with general strength training, with specialized strength training. It's too much. Yeah, yeah, it's good to know, it's good to know. Yeah, but at the beginning, see, we're dealing with the, the strength first. 
So from working on strength, we're not going to be doing any explosive work. That's going to be down the road. So why are we even bother incorporating any jump training? Would you, you do, have to concentrate would you, would you on do, a jump would you do any preparatory work with them in terms of like, like even just some like landing, like it'd be very relative to the, like so that by the time you did get to some explosive work, they had some type of fundamentals within the, the jumping characteristics? Yes, I, I agree with you and you should do this and I do do this. Yeah, sorry for interrupting, go ahead. Not at the beginning, it, it doesn't take that long of doing general drunk, general jump exercises to prepare you for some explosive work. Okay. Well, seeming explosive work can be done at a low level. Like, you know, depth jumps could be done off only a, a one-foot height. Yeah, yeah. So um, my point here is that we have to concentrate on certain things at certain times. Yeah. See, I'm more and not completely like Bereshinsky and I think Bundy Chuck uh, both kind of bring out. It's the concentrated training or concentrated block. Now, it's not the total concept of concentrating, but we have a main objective in this period. Yeah, it's an emphasis. Yeah. So this is where we hit hard. The others are extraneous. Yeah. If we bring them in, it's only for variety or break up the monotony or whatever. But it's not really an integral part of the training. Yeah, yeah. But see, once we move out of that one phase, we move into another phase, then those extraneous ones become more important. Yes, uh, yeah. It's, that, to be honest, yeah. that's exactly how I would program it. And, and that's exactly how Jeff does it too. Like, so even though Jeff may have some type of jumping or net ball, I don't want to speak for him, but this would be my setup. Even though I would have some type of, you know, jump suppliers and net ball and then speed work and multi-directional or special strength training, and then I'd have some uh, power work and strength work. That, that would all be in one session, but there, there would be a main emphasis within that particular training session, depending on what the emphasis was for that whole training block. So like as you said, and then, the, and then all the other qualities are just being maintained. Yeah, okay. Now, I would maybe make one question if I could. Uh, you mentioned the training in, in that one session. <clears throat> no, in that one phase of training. Yeah. So now, when I'm in this phase yeah. of training, every day that we train is basically the same. Yeah. All we're doing is varying the exercises a little bit or how they're executed, but the emphasis is the same. Yeah. And we're not bringing in other factors. See, we have to develop the one before we could do number two. We have to develop number two before we could do number three. And this, by this, I mean the general training. Yeah. We need this training to develop these abilities in order to do this other type of training. Yeah. And we need the adaptation from the first. We need complete adaptation. See, and if you're mixing everything up like this, you never get complete adaptation. Even though if 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 within the oh, even within say that training session, you were uh, you were like again there was a main priority. So let's say out of the 100% of of what you're doing that day, you say like 80% of your energy is going towards this one particular quality, while the other 20% is just is is kind of the retention qualities or the retention loads for your qualities or even introductory loads for your qualities if you're dealing with more of a novice athlete. So that when the when that novice athlete does get to more intensive training blocks, their their organism has had a little bit of preparation for that stimulus. 
Yes, yes. The concept of what you're saying, I agree wholeheartedly, Robbie. There's no question about that. But I think what I'm arguing for is let's not overlook that this main emphasis is where all of our attention should be concentrated. Yeah. See, too often we get distracted by all these other secondary trainings. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. So I, I try to think of it. Look, if this is a strength training phase, this is what we're doing. Yeah. We're not doing any jump training or anything else. We're dealing with strength. So my, so to, to kind of make sure we're on the same page here, so if you're in a strength training block, are you doing nothing else than but strength training? Or would there be a small bit, like, I mean, like a tiny volume of jumps and net balls and speed speed work? Like, that that could incorporate, like, 50% of your program, where the other 85 is just on that strength focus. No. <laughs> the other... Uh, it could all be on strength training. The other part is a little bit on specialized strength training. Okay. And skill. Okay. Or technique. So the skill would be the other part that we're training all the time. Yeah. So skill remains an integral part of the training throughout the athlete's career. Yeah. There's always a tread of it in the program. That's right. See, because as you gain strength, it changes technique. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As you lose strength, yeah. it changes technique. Yeah. As you get faster, it changes Change technique. technique. Yeah, absolutely. That was, a question. Slow. that was a question I was going to ask, but you just, you just answered it. It's what, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Franz Bosch, but it's what he calls attractors and fluctuators, that your attractor state is, oh. yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't do that, but no. Uh, I'm actually going to see Franz on Sunday at a seminar. <laughs> You know, it's disappointing. He's got some good points. Yeah, he's got interesting concepts. I don't want to talk about anybody, uh, you know, without looking at him face to face. Uh, to be honest, Doctor, yes, I was going to, I was going to ask you anyway. That was my next question. Have you looked in the Franz's work and what do you think? So it, it's a, it's a good time to get into it anyway. All right, two things. I think he misuses a lot of information. Okay. Including my own. In some of his writing, he quotes me uh, in 2000, so it's probably out of my explosive running book at that time, saying that uh, uh, to push off, you should have a straight leg. I never said this. So it's a falsehood. Mm. You have a bent knee all the time. Yeah. So where did he get this information? I don't know. And if he does this with my, my work, how can I trust what he's saying about other people's work? And where, where, did he, where, where did he say that, or do you know? Or? Uh, Jeff Moyer sent me the article. Ask him. You know, I asked him for the original source. Uh, this was just the other day. Mm. Uh, but he quoted me from the explosive running book. You see, and then some of the exercises that he advocates were, you know, locking the hips in the uh, high position. See, these have nothing to do with running. See, I think he has a misunderstanding of what really constitutes running. And some of the exercises will, will actually be a detriment to better running. Uh, we can go into these one by one with every exercise. I can back up what I'm saying. Yeah. But uh, maybe we should move off him. And... Yeah, no, it's fair enough because obviously he's not here to, to defend his position. So, But it, it was a question I was going to ask anyway. Uh, listen, this has been fantastic. We'll just wrap up with a few more uh, uh, questions. Um, Dr. Yes, 
in terms of some of the biggest mistakes you've made throughout your career, what would you say have been the biggest mistakes and the greatest lessons you've learned? I, I, I'd use an expression that kind of sums it up. Uh, you grow old too soon and wise too late. <laughs> That's a nice Zen Buddhist Buddhism type quote. So, in other words, some of the things I've learned today, I wish I knew when I was active in sports or when I was, you know, playing varsity sports in college. Yeah. Uh, but you can't go backwards. See, in all during the years, when I look back in the early years of what I did for training, oh, how could I do that? But see, but that was the best that we knew at that time. Yeah. So, you know, we still considered, hey, this is outstanding. This is brand new. So as time goes on, you know, you learn more. And even now, what, what I say and what I teach, it's a lot different from what I did in the early days. Yeah. So we have to keep changing as we gain more information. I think the point here is that don't be afraid to change. There are some people who get locked into one method, and that's all they know, and that's all they do. Yeah. But as information becomes available, change. Change with the sound information. Yeah. Don't change with just any uh, anybody who comes along as an expert. See, today we have to be very, very careful. On the Internet, everyone's an expert. This could be a 12-year-old kid writing something, and we think he's he's the expert in a particular area. Yeah, yeah. We don't know. Yeah. He's just a name. Then it sounds good. So you have to be careful with what you incorporate. And the more knowledge you can gain, you have to be able to interpret what people are saying. Yeah. Or even to interpret the research. There are too many studies today that I would recommend throwing out the window. Yeah. They're based on the wrong Question, assumptions. Questions. But they're not sound, it's not sound research. Yeah, like a lot of it's just quantity these days. Like, I mean, so many people are, like, I'm currently doing a master's and, like, you know, right now I, I hope to do a PhD, but it's like everyone's kind of doing their master's PhD now. So it's just to, to try and get their thesis done and get research done. And then people who are, who are in research, it's just about, making sure to keep getting research out there in terms of funding the money. So a lot of the quality goes down because the, it's all about quantity and getting so much research published per year. Yeah, see, and a good part of this is that today, and I don't know how your professors are doing this, but when I was working or when I taught research and headed up some master's people or even when I worked on my doctorate, The first thing that was hammered into me was, yes, you need a topic, but before you can get your topic, what area are you interested in? Mm. I mentioned the area. Okay, now go out and read everything you can in this area. And that er that area was biomechanics, motor control? Well, I started off first in philosophy, if you can believe it. I can believe and that, yeah. Then I saw that, no, it had too many offshoots and... There was no real direction to it. It was too subjective for you, Dr. Yes. I'm sorry, what? It, it was too subjective for you. It was. So then I said, let me go back to, you know, one of my loves, if I, if I may. Let's, let's take a look at strength. Uh, of course, that was something new at that time. 
We didn't know much about it. But you got to remember, this is in the late 50s that I was working on my doctorate. So uh, I did a study. Uh, okay, well, going back, uh, I read everything I could on strength. And I came up with, you know, we don't know too much about the different kinds of strength, you know, and what it does and what effect it has. Uh, like there's high reps, there's low reps. They still develop strength. Which one is better? How are they related? And this became my study. The relationships between different combinations of reps and resistances. Yeah. It was very interesting. Found out that there's a thread that goes all through strength. You gain strength no matter what. But it's also very specific. If you do low reps, you're going to gain more strength. You high reps, you're going to get more muscular endurance. So I was the first one that really came up with this distinction. And in the middle, you got a combination of both. Uh, so, and then, but see, the key point here is that I first had to learn everything in the field. Yeah. Then I can come up with a topic. Yeah. Today, especially here in the United States, all too often, they first get the topic, do the research, and then, oh, we need a chapter on related literature. Now, let's take a look at what else, what else uh, people have done. And, and a lot of it is cherry-picking, too. It's like they have their paper written and they're looking for papers that just confirm what, they're, what, they're, what they found. Yeah. Yeah, so. Well, that, that's great in terms of, of what you've learned. Uh, in, in terms of... Uh, Daily rituals, Dr. Yeses. Do, do you have any daily rituals? Do you like have a morning routine? Do you like to meditate? Do you, what do you read? Do you journal? Like, how, how, what, what, what's a day in the life of Dr. Yeses now? All right, today's a little different because I've been retired for many years. I still keep myself active uh, as much as I can. See, I have asthma right now, and that slows me down and stops me in many cases. So, without that, uh, I'd be a heck of a lot more active, yeah. you know, while playing some sport, but I can't today because of the asthma. But that doesn't, you know, preclude or stop me from doing more writing, more talking, as we're doing. Yeah. Uh, or working with athletes. I work with many athletes via the Internet. Yeah. They send me film. I analyze the film, send it back to them, uh, tell them what exercise to do. They send me the exercise clips. I correct the exercise execution send it back. So we have a lot of back and forth, yeah. or even via Skype. It's a great device. Yeah, it's great. Uh, we can talk to one another, you know, throughout the entire world and carry on some training. So this is how I stay active. Um, uh, in terms of my reading, I read mainly for relaxation. And most of it is mystery-related. Related. Mystery. Mysteries. Nice, nice. TV, and my favorites... Come from England. Yeah, I'm Irish now, so don't mix me up. Don't forget that. So I also have to remind people that Ireland and the UK are two completely different places, like Canada and the US. Yeah, well, okay, but yeah, but all right. Uh, well, they come from BBC. Let me put it that way. Sorry, right. no, we have BBC here. It's all right. It's all right. And let's be honest, yeah. let's be honest, yes, that doesn't bother me at all. But there, there is Irish people who get who get their fucking. They're, as we, and there's a saying here in Ireland, they get their knickers in a twist over that sort of do, but it doesn't bother me at all. Like, 
It's it's the same with people from New Zealand. If you say, "Oh, are you from Australia?" They go, "No, I'm a Kiwi." It's like, "Oh, <laughs> sorry." <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, speaking of books, there, Doctor Yeses, and, and I, I am going to finish up soon. I want to be respectful of your time. Um, what would be your top resources to all the listeners? And, and when I ask this question, uh, I, I, I don't uh, mean you have to limit your resources to just like physical preparation or your field of expertise or uh, the field in which you, you you're a, you're a master of. Like uh, your resources could be anything to do uh, with with sport training itself, or can just it could be to do with life or spiritual development or personal development. It could be a book. It could be an online course. It could be videos. It could be an actual individual person themselves. What would be your, your top resources out there to all the listeners? Uh, and you can split it up. You can say, these, these are my top training ones. These are my top life ones. Whatever way you want to do it. Tell you the truth, I don't have any. Uh, doesn't mean there aren't any good books. I, I, you know, I, I read in many different areas. Um, especially many of those in terms of uh, changing yourself or opening up your mind to other things. Yeah. Is there any particular thing that, that like had a profound impact on you as a person? Like you say a book you read and you said, yeah, that book really changed how, how I viewed certain things. It's a conglomeration of books. Yeah, yeah. There's no one. Uh, like Psycho-Cybernetics had many good things in it. Great book, it's yeah, yeah, good book. But it's still a good book. Um, see, I can't think of the names of some of the others that have come out recently. You've got, you got, you got, you got your bookshelf there, haven't you? Yeah, and then even uh, Positive Thinking is a good one. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of information or, or resources, see, these are hard to come by. Because we really, and, and it sounds terrible, but we really have not made any progress in sports training since the breakup of the Soviet Union. We still use what they did then in the 80s as our top goals today in 2017. See, we have not progressed from what they did way back when. We're not coming up with new innovations. That's a redundant. Uh, see, we're not looking at how can we make things better. We spend more time, especially in the United States, on what is the best strength training program? Yeah. Is 3x3 three three better than 5x5, five five, better than 531? This is where all the discussion is. Or well, here's how you do the deadlift. They beat they beat it to death. But when, when you use it. When you say, like, we haven't uh, progressed, do you just mean in the U.S.? Because, like, obviously, like, world, there, there are world records that have been broken since the since the breakdown of the Soviet Union, like, obviously, Usain Bolt, for, for instance. Um, and, and there's been multiple other world records broken and, and since the fall of the Soviet Union. So, surely, there are some uh, coaches out there and the athletes who, who are you know, progressing and striving ahead in terms of the evolution of, of sports enhancement? Well, if that's true, and I'm not saying it isn't, where's the information? Take a look at Hossein Bolt. Have you seen anything authoritative and honest about what he does in his training? I've seen, I, I have seen a little bit. I won't, I won't lie now. I, I've never sat down and read it. 
again, a lot of like this. This frustrates me too, Doctor Yes. Is like a lot of things in our profession, from just being in our profession in terms of physical preparation and, and uh, athletic development. Like a lot of people say these things, and they just like say them secondhand, like as if they heard it from another just resource, and it's basically just opinion based. That's why. At certain times in this podcast, I've uh, I've kind of stopped you and said, uh, "Where's the research? Have you got that paper?" Because I'm very skeptical in that regards, you know. So uh, if you're ever like at a seminar and someone goes, "This will increase your strength by 75%," I'm like, "Where are you pulling that number from?" Like usually they're just pulling it out of their arse and they go, "Oh, I heard it from Charles Poliquin." Not having an attack on Charles, but you know, then where did Charles get it from? And it's like it's like uh, Chinese whispers, and then you'll find out that it's kind of like the monk. Uh, or the empire has no clothes. I think if you go back to the to, to the very foundations of it. So, uh, but anyway, your question on Usain Bolt, I've I've never had a I've never had a physical copy of what he did. And he, and even if you did get a copy and said this is his program, you still wouldn't know because if you showed up at the actual live training, you could probably see that they didn't even do what was on the paper. So you don't know. It's like Charlie Francis training system with Ben Johnson. I've met people who worked with Charlie, and, and even Charlie would say, yeah, a lot of the stuff in that we didn't actually do with Ben because we had to like change on a daily basis given given where Ben was or where he was at in his mind and stuff like that, you know? Yeah, so you know, you, you mentioned one thing that always amazed me, like with uh, Ben Johnson and um, just went blank, Charlie Francis. Charlie Francis. Why the emphasis on looking at what he did in his training of Ben Johnson when he was using drugs? When you use drugs, the training is completely different from when you're not using drugs. Yeah. So, you know, but even going back to what I said originally, can anyone name one thing, an innovation? Like, for example, I mentioned uh, Vereshansky. He came up with the stretch shortening concept, which changed, revolutionized the training, especially when it came to explosive training. What has been done since then? What an innovation has come to fruition? Well, I suppose like the stress shortening cycle was something that was understood from the human body's perspective, whereas was a lot of the the current um, attention and research is more into the actual technology around sports and so things like velocity based training and heart rate variability and monitoring even though heart rate variability was in the, was in the Russian system back in the 60s for fuck's sake so that's not even there. That's right. uh, but like uh, I suppose like uh, and even like even even outside of physical preparation if you start looking at regenerative medicine like nowadays like so if you look at the medical field a lot of stuff that medicine is talking about now a lot of the Russians knew back in like the 60s, 70s, and 80s because I, I was uh, I was educated in um, mitochondrial medicine by a guy called Dr. Michael Kuchera from Russia, and Kuchera's like this is all from 1950s uh, Soviet uh, as, um, cosmonaut program. And I was just like fuck, we're 60 yeah. we're 60 years behind. But like uh, yeah, I, I understand where you're coming to a degree, but I, I still think then. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't like fully say we haven't progressed at all. Like uh, like I mean, as I said, like there are athletes out there who have set new world records, and and there are people out there really trying to push the envelope. Maybe it's not. Maybe it isn't. It isn't escalating to the same degree or pace that that was that that happened during the time of the Soviet Soviet Union. Um, like, and, and you're not the only one. I've heard a lot of coaches say, you know, that was the one kind of bad thing about the wall falling was that all that great research is just kind of like 
gone, thrown away. Whereas you know they they had some great concepts and yeah, I I, I understand where you're coming to a degree for sure. No, see, and I think because we have more records being broken, it doesn't always mean it was due to the training. And if it was, what was the training? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see, this, and, and and if it was, we should see this training. See, the person who did it should not be afraid of putting it out there. Yeah. See, now I could be very wrong, but I remember Hussein when he first broke the record. Here he was relaxed for the last five or ten yards, looking around, taking it easy as he crosses the finish line. Yeah. And look how, by what the margin was that he broke it. Now, if he was not taking anything, you know, some kind of a drug or performance-enhancing, you know, uh, substance, uh, I can't see how he could have done it. Yeah. Frank is very wrong. Because we don't have the information. Yeah. That's my point. Yeah. So, yeah, we have all these records being broken, but where's the information backing up that it was the training that did it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't have any answers to that because I have, as I said, I haven't looked deeply into his training. Um, I've only heard true, true, again, true coaches, true opinions of what he, 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 he possibly did do, and you know, and so I, I can't say with any objectivity what he did. Yeah, do. and I can't either. I don't think anyone can. Yeah, true. See, but that's my whole point. So if I'm, we're making progress, where is it? Yeah. Um. Listen, this has been great. Uh, final question for you. Uh, we're going to dinner, and we can invite. I'm going, by the way, with you, so you're stuck with me for the evening. But we can we can uh, we're gonna go to dinner together, and I say to you, Doc, you can invite five people to dinner tonight, dead or alive. Who are you bringing and why? I'm sorry, say that spot again. So you you can invite five people to dinner. Okay. Dead or alive? <laughs> who who are you bringing to dinner and why? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. It is a good question. That's why I asked. <laughs> oh, I'd really have to think on that one, boy. Well, I mean, even 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 if you say five, and then later on you're like, shit, I forgot to invite them. You can sit, you can tell me, and I can just put it into the show notes. And you can have more than five if you need more than five. It's an Irish, it's an Irish restaurant bar, so we've no problem bringing in a few more stragglers. Yeah, because I think in terms of you know both athletes. As well as coaches and some of the Russians, uh, it, it would be a tough call. I don't know if I could limit it to five. Uh, yeah, I, I would look. Yeah, it would be a conglomeration. I think of some of the athletes that I've worked with, some of the coaches that I've worked with, especially some of the Russian coaches. Yeah, yeah. And some of the friendships that I built up there, and and even their knowledge. No, it was a pleasure just to be around them and talk, talk to them, uh, and maybe even uh, uh, a professor or two. Yeah, you know, it's uh, even some of my students. You know, when I think back, at what some of them have done and how they've gone on uh, to, to doing their thing, and, and you know how they've been successful or not successful. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd really have to think about it. 
Okay. Yeah, sounds yeah, good. I'm not so sure I can limit it to five. That's all right. Sorry. Right. Uh, it's it's an unlimited budget anyway, so we could we, with the money won't be an issue with this imaginary dinner. So <laughs> we could we can invite as many as you want. Talk before uh, before we wrap up and tell people where they can get your contact details and, and also about your products and any upcoming projects you're working on or speaking events. Is, sure. Is yeah. there is there just before we talk about that? Is there so you mentioned some some just Russian coaches? Is there any like coach or any like practitioner that you worked with over the years that nearly nobody knew about? Like no one ever heard his or her name. And like they were like just had such a profound impact on you. Like, did you ever have that? Was there anyone there that you're like this person was a genius and no one's ever heard of them? Oh yeah, I can think of one person now in the uh, area of restoration. Uh, see now I just went blank on his name, but he wrote many books uh, for massage and restoration, and I got to know him quite well for many years. Every time I went over there. Wow. But he was foremost when it came to recovery of an athlete. You, you probably have him referenced in your recovery book, have you? He should be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, uh, if you think if you think about it, sure, you can you can send it on to me at, at your email. So, Doc, where can uh, where can all the listeners find out more about you, your work? Where should they go? Okay, first I'd recommend uh, visiting my website, and it has a www. Doctor D O C T O R Yeses Y E S S I S dot com. And I'll, I'll put that in the show notes as well. So it's what I, I'll put a link to your website in the show notes. Yeah, um, yeah, and then you'll see very uh, explanatory. I think all products, and you click on products, so you can click on particular sport as a drop-down menu. You can read all about us and some of the programs that we offer. Yeah. Uh, or if you have anything specific, uh, you know, like I'm doing quite a bit with individual athletes, uh, like a technique analysis, things like this. We have a program right. just called a frame-by-frame program, a mentorship program, if anybody was interested in learning more or following in my footsteps or in footsteps that uh, they would like to see developed. Uh, so we have many things to offer there as well as the books. Like we talked a little bit about the 1x20 strength training program. Well, I have a book on that called The Revolutionary 1x1RM Strength Training Program. Yeah. has all the details on carrying out the program, what it does, and why it's so beneficial. That's a great read. It's a great little book. So is. Well, uh, Doc, is there any book you would recommend to listeners? So let's say, say someone's listening to this now and they've never read any of your books. Would there be any book you'd recommend as the first book to read? Okay, I think I'd recommend two, depending upon what the interests are. Number one would be The Secrets of Russian Sports Fitness and Training. Yeah. This is a great book for an overall picture of the Soviet system, what we've learned from them. Then I explain in detail what each new concept is. So I did the book first in 87, but then I updated it a few years ago with an addendum of X number of pages attached to each chapter. Yeah, it's great. It the, the, yeah, the second edition was, was brilliant. And the, the first edition used to be called uh, The Secrets of Soviet Sports and Fitness Training. Right. And then the second edition was called uh, The Secrets of the Russia, uh, Secrets of Russian Sports and Fitness Training. Yeah, and and uh, I had the second edition, and it's fantastic. It was really a very clever idea, uh, putting the addendum after each individual chapter. 
Yeah, to bring it up to date. Then, or that I would recommend Build a Better Athlete. This is a great book if you want to learn a little bit about skill execution. I have a lot of sequence pictures of the different basic skills. And then a separate chapter dealing with each of the physical qualities. Yeah. One on strength, one on endurance, one on uh, circulation, one on, it has everything in there. Agility, flexibility, and so on. Uh, so that is a very well-read and well-accepted book and is great at the beginning. See, then for more specialized work, if you're more interested in plyometrics, then I have a book, Explosive Plyometrics. Yeah. And if you're a golfer, have a book on golf, all specialized exercises to improve the golf swing. Yeah. Or oh, basketball, same yeah. thing. And your explosive, your explosive running book is another one, too. Yeah, explosive running. Yeah, that's another great seller. Yeah. Uh, many people really love it. It's the only book really that has all of the detail on what happens in every joint during the run and how it can be improved. Yeah. So it's loaded with specialized strength exercises, yeah. all the conjugate methods. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Doctor, yes, thanks so much for your time. Just stay online uh, just for one minute after I just close up the podcast. So guys. An absolutely outstanding hour and almost 30 minutes with Dr. Michael Yeses. Fantastic information. And, uh, you know, Dr. Yeses is a legend in, in our in our field, in our profession. You know, uh, one of the early godfathers of uh, physical preparation. Um, so I really appreciate him giving us his time today. Just for all the listeners, guys, if you can share this podcast out on your social media outlets um, and leave a review, it would be great. But for now, I'll talk to everyone soon. Take care, be well, and stay strong.